Across the country, your source for the best in hunting, fishing, shooting, and camping is chase-outdoors.com. And for those of us in Wisconsin, it's our Chase Outdoors store in Rothschild. Through our company, our time in the outdoors, we're brought alongside incredible people who work in, compete in, enjoy, and fight for our sporting heritage. We're grateful to be able to share these great people and their stories on this Chase Outdoors, the podcast. Thank you for listening. Welcome, everybody, to Chase Outdoors, the podcast. I'm Justin Geike. Here we are in another uh, another week, another installment and episode. Uh, again, it's a great time of year because winter's getting a little bit further behind us. I am sick and tired of snow. Uh, even though this episode is, is going to be airing here in May, uh, here we are approaching April, and we've got two giant dumpings of snow on the way. <laughs> it just won't quit. Um, steelhead fished on, on Tuesday for the first time. It was great. I had an awesome time. I want to go again. I've got Saturday off and we're getting another foot of snow. So it, it sucks. And you've been in Florida for. Seems like three months, but three months. months. Yeah. yeah um, I feel terrible for you. And <laughs> the weather change is fantastic, but it's also leaving a wife and children at home who are a little yeah. jealous that, uh, they have to shovel and snowball the driveway. Well, that's I'm, gone. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that goes over really well. How do you even, you can't even be happy. Like, when, yeah, it's really hard work on, you know, this, I haven't been outside at all, you know, like trying not to give them the temperature down there. Too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Don't turn Strava on when you're doing 18 holes of golf and just really after it today, hon. Really after it. Yeah. But um, welcome, everybody. Um, I am with somebody today who is the size of Goliath. Uh, but when it comes to working for and defending our right to hunt, our right to shoot, the Second Amendment, conservation, uh, he's truly a David. Yeah, you, you are out there uh, picking up stones and flinging them as hard as you can in the name of what you uh, believe in is is right. And anybody who hunts and fishes, we're having this conversation. You hunt, you fish, you shoot. Uh, you know who I've got today is a true warrior and advocate for you and what's important to you. And and um, you know you're not the guy on the host of the TV show. You know you're not the guy on the package of the product. Um, but I would argue that the work that you do is significantly more important because it's the dirty work that none of us really want to do. And that's and that's the advocacy side, uh, you know, the fundraising side, the political side. And, and it's a it's an ugly world at times in, in a place where we just want to go out into nature and get away from our jobs and, and enjoy the outdoors and have fun with our friends and have family and and, and we don't want to necessarily put that work into it. And you're doing that on our behalf. So everyone that's listening uh, owes an exceptional amount of, of gratitude for the work that you and your organization do. Uh, and that's Luke Hilgeman, the Executive Director of International Outdoor, International Order of Theodore Roosevelt. Yes. Luke, thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you for that tremendous um you know, opening and introduction, and it's an honor to sit across the table from you uh, because, you know, when I was running an organization before IOTR called Hunter Nation, um, I saw you at the Wisconsin Bear Hunters Association event, and you and I exchanged some conversation and shared mm -hmm. some tales about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I knew from that minute, like, I need to learn more about this Justin guy because you're on the right path here with what you're doing in our local community, and I just want to say thanks to you for providing this incredible, um, you know, shop and community um, that you've built here in Wausau. And it's pretty amazing to see. So thank I, you. I appreciate it so much. I've, I've always said that, uh, that the store is my platform. It's not my purpose. Okay. And, and 
I love what I do. You can just see what, before we sat down and started doing this, I mean, look at all the people out there right now. Yeah. And there are people that I've got relationships with from whether it's here at the store or whether it's at church, those last people out there I've known for years through that. And, and you can't not help but feel very fortunate to be in a position where every day you're just coming in and dealing with people that you love, you know, people that have really common thought processes and common passion, whether it's conservation, the outdoors, hunting and fishing, getting youth involved, like it's, it is addicting in the times when it's, it's super hard, you know, and super stressful and you're worrying about all these things. All it takes is one conversation with a person like that to remind you why you're doing it. So, uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate the introduction is well. yeah. yeah so uh, yeah thanks I, I think that this is a great opportunity I, I've, I've enjoyed getting to know you you know it was last year it was about the time of the youth hunt when I last saw you and you're here in the shop and you know it was, it was pre-election right it's just pre-election sure. when we were, we were talking about uh, the importance of hunters getting out and participating if you truly love the sport like you do and, and people who hunt and fish are passionate individuals, you know, the, it's how they spend their vacations. The guy that I was just talking to out there, he just had his buck from last year scored and he's already planning for next year. And his wife's giving him grief because like, Hey, let's enjoy the summer. And his daughter's sitting there and she's like, yeah, I got a birthday too. <laughs> you know? So obviously we're passionate about participating in the sport, but I think that sometimes the message is lost of what we need to do to preserve it, how important it is, and not understanding that there is that there is a battle on the backside, yeah. and that we are truly at risk of losing our rights. Yeah. And, and we keep thinking here in Wisconsin because the hunting and fishing culture is so strong, can't happen to us. And that's just simply not true. Yeah, it's not true. The threats are real; they're growing every day, and uh, whether we want to admit it or not. Um, we as hunters in America are probably sometimes our own worst enemy for some of the things that we do. You and I shared dinner tonight and we we're talking about how we as, as a community um, who enjoy this outdoor lifestyle, these amazing blessings that we've been given to manage, we too often divide ourselves around, well, you're a bow hunter or you're a crossbow hunter or you're a bear hunter and you're a deer hunter. So therefore, I'm not going to defend your right as much as I want you to defend mine. And I think those are the two biggest threats that we have. They come from internal, but there's also external forces that are working every day um, with more resources than we have mm -hmm. uh, to try and take down the sport of hunting and this lifestyle that we love to pursue every day. Um, and I think we need to be real about that and we need to educate ourselves more about the narratives and the stories that we tell about what hunting means to us but also what it means to the non-hunting public. Because while there's 15 million Americans who have bought a license in the last couple of years and, and participated in the sport of hunting, the vast majority of Americans are non-hunters. Yep. They're not antis, but they just don't hunt. Yep. And we have to do more to bring them into the fact that without hunting, we don't have many of the conservation stories that we talk about and share as, uh, successes throughout American history. Those things don't happen without the sport of hunting. And we do a terrible job of educating the public about that and educating ourselves. I'm constantly amazed about how many hunters don't realize that when you come to a store like yours and you purchase a handgun or you purchase a rifle or you purchase a, a fishing rod and, and equipment to, to take up the sport, that you are putting those dollars right on the spot 
going back into conservation. It's called the Pittman-Robertson Program or Johnson-Dingle Program. Last year in Wisconsin alone, that was a $20 million tax payment that was made to the state of Wisconsin. And when I talk about those numbers with fellow sportsmen and women, they don't even know that those programs exist. What do you mean that I'm paying a tax on every piece of equipment that I buy? And that was a program that was created almost 100 years ago. There's nothing else like it. Nothing else. Nothing else. And we are one of the only user groups that puts in at this level the kind of money that we do on an annualized basis to support access, opportunity, uh, building of the herds and the flocks, the management of those species through our game agencies. 70 to 80% of the conservation dollars that are spent in America come out of the pocket of an angler, a hunter, or a trapper. And we don't even talk about that. And one of the crazy things that I see that that's one of the big threats in, in sure, maybe part of it's coming from a selfish position as a merchant, as a retailer, but we don't realize what we're doing to ourselves sometimes in the future of our sport when we try to circumvent American ingenuity, American engineering, and American manufacturing by buying some of these knockoff products that you find on Facebook, on Instagram, on all these different social media platforms, Alibaba, all this stuff, where these products are coming from Asia direct and they're getting circumvented. Yeah. They're not paying, make no mistake, those knockoff rage broadheads that you're buying, those knockoff arrows that you're getting for half off, you are literally robbing from yourself and everyone else that hunts and fishes because those Pittman and Robertson taxes aren't being paid. And if you don't think those are important, I would challenge somebody to ask the question, what happens if hunters and fishermen can no longer support the conservation in this country? What happens when all of a sudden the adversaries that we have for our rights to hunt and fish step up and go, hey, you know, you guys aren't doing your part. There's not enough money coming in. We're going to find another source of that. And all of a sudden, people not realizing that dollars are votes, our voice is gone. And, and I've seen it. I've, I've watched guys bring in knockoff crankbaits and go, look, I got these, these you know, Berkeley Flicker Shad knockoffs for $2 a piece. And I look at them and, and quite comfortably, I say, man, I hope they don't work. You know, I hope you don't catch anything on them. And they look at me like I'm insulting them, but I'm not. What I'm doing is I'm advocating for everyone else by saying that. Such an important point that you bring up and one that we don't even think about, right? I'm getting a deal. No, you're not. You're, you're literally starving the future of our sport because, as you said, as the dollars go away, so too do the opportunities. And not only the opportunities, but it empowers the opposition to our lifestyle, which the biggest example I use of this is the Humane Society of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. They're out there. They're running their ads constantly on TV broadcasting all over the country, talking about protecting the puppies and the kittens. In reality, there are $150 million a year powerhouse. That's top stated goal is to end big game hunting in North America. Yep. That's their goal. And that's the opposition of what we're up against. And when you go and do those types of things that don't support the programs that allow all of the great stuff that we just talked about to happen, you're starving that. They're starving that for the next generation of Americans who, quite honestly, are turning away from the sport faster than we can bring them in. And, and they're word playing all those people who don't hunt and mm -hmm. even some that do to think that it's the Humane Society of Marathon County right. that does so much good. Right. You know, to think that to think that, you know, all these counties around here and they're local financially starved 
you know, um, organizations that are trying to help our community, that when you're giving to Humane Society of America, that that money's going to your local, it's not. It's, it's not. That's not the point. That's not where the money goes. It's a political engine that's trying to stop hunting Amen. and it's not doing anything for your local community that's right by all means if you are passionate about the humane society good for you so am i i think it's a great thing but make sure it's at the local level right. and not to an organization that's not using it to actually benefit cats and dogs i have both yeah you know yeah and I, animal shelters are an important part of our community absolutely but, but people like you said that are using their name to basically confuse you and say, oh, no, it's the Humane Society of the United States, so it must be the parent entity of our local dog shelter or cat shelter or pet shelter. It's just nothing further from the truth. Yep. It's an organized, legal, political entity that is doing nothing but trying to end big game hunting as we know it. Yeah. And it really goes down to asking the question, like, it's a two-part thing. Like, first of all, the first step for us to do something about that is to unify as sportsmen. Amen. You know, the idea, and I hear this not every day, but enough in this store. When I hear about tree stands stolen, game cameras stolen, border disputes, people shooting deer and in, 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 going into the neighbors and neighbors who also hunt not being neighborly and let them go in there. I mean, those stories over and over and over. And we hear this stuff. And, and, you know, I can't imagine what it'd be like if my son shot a deer and it jumped the fence and the neighbor didn't look like it. what you're doing to destroy our sport like you you know you shouldn't even be allowed to have a hunting license as long as you guys have a good neighborly relationship and you've got like by all means we've got to work together on that stuff in in robbing from your fellow hunter and fisherman is the first step to destroying what we're doing it's the opposite and we even see this and you would know with your inside you know history in politics and with these organizations it's happening at the organization level too right no, like no. i mean you know does ducks bear deer you know grouse elk all these organizations ever do anything in a unified measure to work together more often than not, um, it seems like they're all focused on, you know, like you named them, right? I'm focused on the grouse. We're focused on the ducks. We're focused on the elk. We're focused on the mule deer. We're focused on the whitetails. And unfortunately, because of that division that often happens, we're not focused on the actual sport protecting hunting. And one of the things that we're doing with IOTR, the new organization that I'm running, is really going back to what are we doing to protect the fundamentals of the outdoor lifestyle that we live? Mm -hmm. And what I did is went back and did you know, pretty exhaustive research about all 50 states to figure out what are the best states in the country when it comes to protecting our rights as hunters, anglers, trappers. And what I found is that more often than not, the 24 or 23 states that had a constitutional right to hunt and fish enshrined in their state constitution, those were the places where the anti-hunters weren't trying to ban hunting of one, one form or another. Um, they had a pretty organized coalition of groups that was you know, fighting together to protect what they had. Um, and there wasn't the turf wars that had often happened in other states where it's like, well, they're going after the bear hunters today. So good for us as whitetail hunters, you know, they're not coming after us or they're going after the hound guys and they're not coming after, you know, the, the, the duck hunters. And, and I think that to me was the foundation of where we started is we have got to make sure that where these 
we call them personal freedoms because that's mm-hmm. what they are, um, are not protected, that we're doing everything we can to enshrine those in the state constitution, which gives them a higher power than just your standard law because it gets the backing of the people. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're doing in IOTR. We're doing that in four states right now. We're focused on Florida, we're focused on Iowa, we're focused on Ohio, and we're focused on South Dakota. And you look at those four states, and most of the time when I talk to people about our priorities, they're like, what do you mean we don't have a constitutional right to hunt and fish in South Dakota or Iowa? That's crazy. Right? Or even Florida. And and it's to me, it's just they don't think these things are at risk because they've had it so good for so long, they forget that the political winds could change. And all of a sudden, you got a group like that one that's out in Oregon called Wildlife for All. Uh, that's literally trying to criminalize the sport of hunting, fishing, and farming. It's not just hunting and fishing now. These same people, the animal rights radicals, are going after farming. And think about that. In the state of Oregon, which has one of the greatest health populations in the Northwest, mm-hmm. criminalizing hunting, criminalizing it, making it a crime to go and harvest an animal, catch a fish. Think about what that does to your culture in a place like Oregon. And they came within 20,000 signatures of putting that on the ballot in Oregon just last year. Yeah. And we don't even know about it. Well, look what they've done with firearms yeah. in Oregon. Yeah. I mean, they completely dismantled that too. The second, yeah. I mean, that, that is a tremendous enemy against what is a great wild natural resources hunting into a heritage state. That's right. And it's being done at, you know, these large cities that have no connection with that, you know, natural resource to even know anything about it. So we were outside of Seattle a few years ago. We walked into a winery and and there's this beautiful stream running by, you know, and I make the comment, I'm like, gosh, I'll bet you there's some great trout fishing in there. And she's like, yeah, actually it's really great. Last year, saving salmon got it shut down to fishing. And she didn't even skip a beat. I looked around, I looked at my wife and I'm like, gone. Yeah, you know, I'm not spending my money here. Are you no. kidding me? I, I understand and value preserving our opportunities, our natural resources, our fish populations. I think that there are challenges as fishing technology grows and fishing participation grows in certain areas where we've got to take a hard look at right, individual regulations for specific bodies of water. For sure. But but the idea that there is this blanket mindset that of just pure unadulterated joy not we needed to do this to protect you know it was just yep so happy we got it shut down it had nothing to do with biology nothing it was an emotional response based based in insanity right like literally to say that we're saving fish by preventing them from being harvested by anglers who are putting more money into the system to make sure that that stream is completely full of those fish for future generations is just that's the stuff that we fight against every day yeah and is that the primary so you know with with iotr is that the primary function is the constitutional right at the core level because there's all those other organizations you know don't get me wrong there's no there's not an ounce of animosity towards any of these out there. We need them. They're fantastic. Like we were saying, I love RMEF. That's one of my favorites. You know, I'm accessing our, you know, public land that we're equal shareholders of that I previously couldn't because of the work that they have done. 
You know, I don't know how anyone, whether you hunt or you don't, can't be a fan of DU when we're talking about the benefit of clean water. And I don't even, you know, take put, take the ducks and move them out of the way. What does it do, you know, for the fish, for the drinking water, for the salamanders, for the turtles, for the frogs? Like, you know, if you don't hunt, you still need to be a giant fan of DU. Yeah. Like, it's, it's just crazy. You know, and the same thing is probably, is ultimately true with all of them. They are. You know, it really is. Yeah. But and, and, and I think their missions are all important. But I think the thing that I've seen with IOTR so far is we are laser focused on, let's protect the fundamental right to hunt, fish, and trap. Mm-hmm. And if we get that right, then we can work together on all of these other things together as time allows. But if we don't do that first thing, like I said, the antis are coming to these states that don't have these rights protected, and they are making it a focus, and they're getting more resources than we have at our disposal to fight against them. And so that's what we're trying to focus on. And when you look at the demographic of hunters and fishermen talking about finances, why is that? Uh, you know, to me, I think it's, again, the emotional appeal for the opposition to our lifestyle is they are raising it under false pretense, right? Mm-hmm. They're saying we're protecting these poor little critters and they're getting hundreds of millions of dollars off of saving cats and kittens and dogs and pets. When in reality, they're saying, no, we're going to generate that money and then use it to stop hunting or stop fishing or stop farming. And I think there's just that disconnect with, what these nonprofits on the opposition side are doing compared to what we try to do, which is we're honest about it. We put the name of what, who we are, right? You talked about it. Ducks, elk, turkeys. That's what we're protecting, right? They, they're out there saying it's the Humane Society or Wildlife for All or Animal Defense Fund. Everybody wants to protect animals, right? Yep. We do. But at the end of the day, we do it through a different mechanism, which is responsibly managing that resource, making sure that the resource has the money that it needs to be able to regenerate and repopulate and keep these populations coming back. And I think we are we are our own worst enemies because we do not tell that story enough about what the facts are that without hunting and without fishing and without trapping and without conservation efforts, we don't have the North American model. We just don't. No. No, and I think a lot of things, a lot of people don't realize, you know, as we move, you know, unfortunately towards a more European style society, that they don't understand how special and unique America is. There's this, there's a giant anti-American viewpoint amongst Americans right now. It's like, my life is so good that I have to find something to hate, right? And there is this almost anti, I'm ashamed of my American heritage right now. And, and is there some really ugly stuff in our American culture and history? You bet there is, you bet. like all nations. You bet. But the problem is, is I think we're losing sight of what an absolute ecological wonder this country is. And I would, and I would venture to argue that that the majority of the people, and, and that's another thing too. Like we, we as hunters and fishermen don't realize, if you go on social media, social media is not representative of reality when it comes to the support of hunting. Yeah. You know, this the last podcast from we were with, you know, Patrick Durkin, he was the one who brought it up. He's like, the studies over the years saying that 75 to 80% of Americans support hunting as long as it's done for the purpose of eating food. And that that statistic hasn't changed for decades. Yeah. It's still true today. But if like so many of us have our worldview through what we see on social media, you would think that we are a, gigantic minority which makes you feel defeated which makes you feel like you cannot speak up but but this 
this this single digit minority that's opposed is louder yes. and more aggressive and more chaotic than everyone else because we're busy just trying to do our thing. Right. And 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 that can be terrifying if we don't pay attention. We need I think we actually need to have that confidence that we do have the support. We really do. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think too, just arming ourselves, like we've talked about this too, is is just the education gap that exists Mm -hmm. about the facts, about what we do, why we do it, how we do it, the dollars involved, and then sharing that. Start with ourselves and then share it out broadly with the non-hunting public. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I don't think the opposition has much of a leg to stand on. Mm -hmm. Because if you, you talk to them about, well, what have you actually accomplished? At the end of the day, what what has PETA done? What has HSUS done? They're not doing any of what they've said they're going to do. And and at the end of the day, we have all of the results on our side as long as we know about them. Yep. As long as we share them in a way that helps us build genuine confidence that, look, we're not just out there to go and kill these animals. We're out there because we're bringing them home to feed our families, feed our neighborhoods, feed our, our you know, our community. And to me, that I think is another big missed opportunity that we, as the hunters and anglers and trappers in this country, we just don't talk about it enough from a place of this is why we do what we do. And here's why it matters. Like here in Wisconsin, okay, the fact that the industry of hunting is more than a $2 billion annual economic impact in Wisconsin. 18,000 jobs are supported by hunting in Wisconsin. And when I shared those statistics at the state legislature last year, people looked at me like, what? What do you mean? And that stuff's all readily available. And if our own elected officials don't know that, how do we expect that our people that don't hunt or don't fish or don't participate in this lifestyle are going to know that either? And so I think that's the big opportunity we have is we've got to do a better job of telling the story. And that starts with arming ourselves with real facts that are readily available mm-hmm. all over the place for us to learn more about what we actually do. Yeah. And that just comes down to you know, understanding Pittman Robertson is, is a great, you know, first start. Yeah. Understanding the economic impact in, in where you see these organizations, you know, and how much for every dollar is actually going to boots on the ground conservation projects. Right. And you're seeing that amongst a lot of the organizations, you're got your guys self-included, where it's not just about dollars to to the political fight, but it's also a direct, you know, you know, putting their money where our mouth is to conservation. You know, one thing I see with you guys, which, you know, which, which, you know, with associated with the name Teddy Roosevelt really yeah. jumps out to you, yeah. you know, is, is your guys Sage Cross project, yeah. right? Like tell us about that. What's yeah. that all about? So this is, this is a project that I'm, and it's, it's cutting edge in the fact that it's again, another example of private philanthropy hunters, largely hunters that are supporting this, who went in, and so came alongside of a bird farmer in Wyoming who had worked with the Wyoming Department of Game and Fish to basically test whether or not they could take sage grouse eggs from the wild, bring them to his captivity, to his bird farm in Wyoming, raise them, and figure out a way to bring them back into nature, just like we do with a lot of other game birds, pheasants, chucker, all of the different game birds that we do this with. And he was told from the outset, by every anti-hunting biologist in the world, this is impossible. It's been tried. It can't be done. And this bird farmer in Wyoming found a mix that allows him to raise these birds. And now he has more than 3,000 of them in captivity that he's raised from eggs, ready to be released back into Wyoming. 
all with the goal of bringing back a species that's on the threatened list, right? And if we do that, not only is it an access issue, because the opposition in the West is saying we need to shut down all habitat. That includes for farming, for ranching, for energy exploration, for hunting. And what we're saying is that there are alternatives to that view that say, no, we just need to be able to produce more of the species to put them back out into the wild and let them survive so that we can continue to hunt them. Well, and if they're against that, which it sounds, you know, if all the biologists are saying, no, 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 you can't do that, then it opens up a point where, like, how can you not see that there's an alternative agenda there? A hundred percent. You know, the same thing is true with, with all these organizations you know, what's what's the answer to everything, right? It's more predators, more predators, more predators. Yep. And what's the net result? Like, that's the that's the thing for me that I always get into when I'm having these conversations. Like, I don't care. All right, you know, we're going to disagree on these things. Let's get down to the net result. I'm not going to get emotional about it. Yep. It's just, here's point A. We know what point B want. You know, we want it to be. If we do all these different paths, what does point B look like? And in, in what I see in the point B of the predator enhancement that's happening is creating places where people don't want to go, destroying existing populations of, of you know, pursued game, destroying the hunting culture, eliminating them. I mean, how many people here in the shop that I talked to that say, you know, like, I'm not going to go hunt elk in Matitsi because I don't want to be in that grizzly infested territory. You know, yeah. it takes a special person or an educated or experienced person to be confident or comfortable to go and play in that play in that wheelhouse which drives more hunters into smaller areas which get into other areas that don't have the predator populations which creates a less enjoyable experience and then all of a sudden we're suffering you know we look at northern wisconsin as a prime example and even though we have the predator issues at the end of the day i still think habitat is the biggest challenge that we have because that same group of environmentalists has destroyed the concept of logging. And and if you truly care about animals, then you have to be pro-logging. If you truly care about fighting wildfires, you have to be pro-logging, you know, and you go into some of these old growth forests and you look around and you have any wit about you, about habitat needing to support wildlife, you'll realize that the place is a desert. If no sunlight can get through because no trees are cut, there's no undergrowth, there's no habitat, there's no place for them to hide, there's no winter browse, there's no nothing. And look, they're deer deserts. There's no rabbits, there's no... And they're 100% intentional. Yeah. And 100% intentional, again, from the opposition to our lifestyle, using the predators, using the anti-logging rhetoric, using those things to push us out of this lifestyle. I believe it in my soul, right? Like you just look at the amount of properties that have been transferred out of hunting families in the northern part of Wisconsin because of the wolf problem. It's decimating our hunting culture in northern Wisconsin. And not only that, the economic damage of it is enormous. We can talk about, you know, them killing cattle and and what about the tourism dollars? What about the land value? You You know, if you look, the the reason that land in Tigerton and Buffalo County and in um, Richland Center and all these things. Why those? Why the, that land is so expensive? It's it's because it's the demand to deer hunt it. That's right. You know, and we, and we see that too. I mean, people that are willing to pay you know six to ten thousand dollars and above to obtain property to hunt on. There's no one buying those properties. I mean, no one no. except for hunters. Mm-hmm. And it, and if you don't. And you think about the property tax that comes from that, the tourism dollars, the benefit to everyone else that lives in that community and what it does for growing the value of their properties and setting them up for retirement. It's massive. And we've destroyed 
a lot of the economic potential of the North Woods yeah. by doing things that hurt the quality of the hunt. That's right. You know, and, and you know, we talk about bear hunting too. Like, you know, why does with the population being as high as it, why does it take me ten years to get the opportunity to go up there and hunt? It's on, you know, why why does that happen? Yeah. You know, and and those questions you have to ask. Okay, well, why is that happening? And what's the net result? And if that kid that lives in Bayfield grows up and like their dad says, okay, we're going to go deer hunt, you know, the gun season. And they sit there for nine days as hard as it is with today's youth to keep them engaged and occupied because of all the fast responses that come from social media and electronics and video games and all these things. They're bored out of the mind and never want to do it again. And now all of a sudden the opposition wins that she battle. And, and that's where we are. I think you take a look at the hunting numbers just in America in the last five years. We've lost two million hunters. Two million people have hung up the sport and walked away. And we are not replacing them quick enough to even keep what we have. Right? And to me, that's part of the opportunity that we also have. Because there's also been vast studies done by some very smart people, including one researcher at the North Carolina State University, who did an exhaustive um, study of 17,000 university students from across the nation, went in and asked them about their views on hunting. It was fascinating, right? We think, well, okay, like we talked about earlier, about half of the population is just agnostic to hunting. They're not going to take it up. It's not something that they love, but they're not antis. You know, get another 25% that are, you know, hunters, and then the other 25% are anti-hunters. Mm-hmm. What they found is that amongst those 18 to 25-year-olds in, in America, if you talk to them about hunting as a way to gain food, 60% of them are supportive of hunting. Wow. And, and then out of that 60%, there's 30% of them who said, I'd love to take up the sport of hunting, I just don't know how to get started. Like, to me, that's the real opportunity for us as sportsmen and hunters is what are we doing to break down those barriers to the outdoors that don't give the next generation confidence to come and join us in these pursuits? And I think there's a lot of, you know, R3 has been something that's been out there for the last decade, but I don't think we're doing enough to be creative and say, how do we reach these kids and show them a path to taking up the sport and continuing the legacy that we as hunters have been given from our forefathers and you know, continued on here for the last several hundred years. And you even have within the large media sector of the hunting nation, some individuals that are even starting to question recruitment saying, you know, at the end of the day, are we, you know, hurting the quality of the hunt by going out and getting more And that? And that to me is, is an alarming thought process. I mean, the idea that that we don't, I that we don't want to recruit is is a hard thing for me to understand. I'm not going to go out and speak against it at this point. I'm just going to say I don't understand it. Um, but the the thing that comes up to me is like our population as a nation is growing. It's going to continue to get better. There is going to be a ceiling in the population number with the amount of public land that we have accessible or private land that we have accessible. To, to have a healthy continued support of hunting, there's a, I feel like there's a cap. Because yeah. already like our ability to achieve tags in the West is getting significantly harder at an alarming rate. Right. You know, I have to spend an exorbitant amount of time to manage my application process. There's tags at 40 years old that I'll never have a chance at drawing. Right. I, I just, I don't, 
You know, right now, the the idea that I would apply for Wyoming moose for the next 30 years to have a minimal chance to draw that tag right. at current prices of $150 a preference point, you start to do the math that I could realistically invest over $10,000, you know, in my lifetime right. to... And then not, I might not get to do right, and then not have the opportunity to even pass that tag on to your son or descendant, right? Yeah. So I, I'm really, you know, I feel like what I'm saying by that is if the population in this country continues to grow and our hunting population stabilizes or continues to shrink, the percentage of active hunters is, is going to shrink at an alarming rate to a point where we have to really be worried about whether we have a voice or not, which only strengthens the need for those constitutional rights. Because yes. there's going to hit a point where we're not just a, a small minority number, but we're an insignificant part of the population. And that really starts to raise red flags of whether or not our children, or our grandchildren are going to have the right to do what we do. So that's where I struggle to have the question on why now in this moment would we not be trying to recruit yeah. hunters at least to keep up with the ones that yeah, we're losing right. i don't understand that yeah that makes no sense to me yeah but again another example of us being our own worst enemy right and, mm -hmm. and it, instead of saying um and, and maybe it's a selfish thing right we talked about this too earlier where it's like well that's my deer or that's my elk or my bear no it's not it's a public resource right mm -hmm. that's everyone has equal opportunity these animals some of us you know make our properties more um inviting to those animals and we have a better opportunity but at the same time it's not mine it's right. everyone's right and i think the further we get away from that understanding the worse off we're going to be as a as a hunting community without a doubt yeah and as i love those shirts that you see you know, say public landowner yeah. on it. Like the idea, the importance of that message, I okay. think is so big to realize that, you know, we're all equal shareholders. And if we don't start treating it as ours yeah. in our neighbors, then all of a sudden we're not fighting for it. And we have that opportunity to lose that too. Look at how much of our land we can't access unless we have a helicopter. Yeah, right. I'm not buying a helicopter. <laughs> Unfortunately, me either. You know, you, yeah. you know, you see, and I don't have many buddies that have that access to a helicopter. Either. Right. Yeah. You know, I've seen some examples, yeah. you know, where, where uh, you know, these guys are are taking them into these landlocked public pieces and having phenomenal hunts, you yeah. know, and and, uh, and that's crazy. And it also, again, goes back to, like, why we're seeing, I think, the, the, the hunter athlete is growing because we're starting to see the, the need and importance of getting further back and getting away from people or accessing more of the land that's ours. I think that's that's real big. But you made you made a great point on when when you're talking about the youth and how difficult it is for somebody who doesn't grow up in a hunting family or in a hunting community. How do they get started? Yeah. To me, I think, again, we, we set up these barriers to our sport um, and, and we talk about regulation okay so here in the state of wisconsin just just for our hunting regulations 170 pages long okay 170 pages now i've had multiple friends come in from out of state to join us on a farm here in central wisconsin to deer hunt and it takes them half hour 40 minutes to figure out what do i have to what zone is this what am i doing where am i going how can i hunt what can i use and we have just got to get a system that is much more simpler than what we currently have. Um, you know, somebody shared with me a reference when their grandfather started hunting. This is back when hunting first came about. Whitetail mm -hmm. hunting in Wisconsin. It was one page. Yep. One page. 
And I know there's season structure and we have to be you know, explicit about our different zones and other things, but we've got to get away to make this simpler for people who are coming into the sport for the first time, maybe in a mentored situation, maybe not. Maybe they're an adult who wants to come out and learn more about the sport. We just got to get to a place that says, here's what you can hunt. Here's what you're hunting with. And here's the regulation you need to follow. So you don't feel like you need to take an attorney with you into the woods every time that you go. And the further we get away from that by allowing our government and our agencies to continue to create all of this regulation and all of this red tape, the more difficult it's going to be for us to recruit more people to the field. I feel that way currently about the the latest change last week in the in the forty four seventy three form to do a background check. We've had a ton of people really struggle just to understand and read the verbiage. When I and I can't, if I was allowed to rewrite that question or verbalize what that question means, and I and I can't do that, I could simplify that into a half sentence or a short sentence that they could be like. Yep, not a drug addict. <laughs> like, you know, and check the box. And it's almost to the point where I feel like it's discriminatory because, you know, say you have, you know, a, a 10th grade education level in in reading and writing. Yeah. You know, maybe it's maybe it's a rural kid or, a, you know, a kid that lost a parent that, you know, quit school or all these things like none of those things disqualify them from their right to own a firearm. Amen. But it's written in a way now where it's discriminatory that unless you're an English major, you know, and I can read, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm not a fool. But even to me who lives in this business yeah. and looks at this form multiple times a day, it's challenging for me to read and explain. And it's not just people who don't have a high level of education. Right. I have had you know, business owners and doctors and college graduates going what the hell does this mean? Right. And it just, it, I swear it's almost like it's set up where they're trying to get you. Of course. You know, I want you to answer that question wrong. And right. it just kind of, you know, is that what's also happening with our regulations and with, even within the regulations, you know, yes, they're lengthy and they don't have caliber restrictions in there this year or last year. Right. Now I understand common sense would say, yep, don't use a 22 long rifle. Right. But yet still, what about your barrel legs? It's not written in there. So so it, does that put a new hunter at risk? Yeah. You know, because it's still a law. For sure. But it's not in the regulations and they make a decision. Well, I'm going to go hunt with a handgun. I've got a 357 with a four-inch barrel on it, yeah. which, you know, in some cases at certain ranges is a, probably a very suitable, you know, weapon to harvest a deer with that they could themselves end up getting a fine or a confiscation because it's not in written in the regulations and and we're we're to that point where we've come complicated it so much that the people that are putting them together aren't even doing it right correct yeah yeah but uh as far as if if we as hunters if we have people approach us um that say that they want to hunt. We had that example that, you know, I had mentioned to you, I had a guy from inner city, Chicago, move up to the Wausau area here. He's walking in and asked, he's like, you know, Hey, do you listen to Rogan? Like, yeah, I have a pulse. So I like everyone else listening to Rogan from time to time, you know? And, and he's like, yeah, that guy really got into hunting. Huh? I'm like, yeah, yeah. He wasn't a hunter. And now he's, 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 a, he's a, yeah, I think I want to do that in 
And obviously here in the store, we're well equipped, yeah. not just with product knowledge and, and, and the stuff to do it with, but the people in the community and in awareness of the programs out there. But as we're trying to go help that guy by showing him how to access the public land maps on the DNR website, on, on his first time buyer opportunities for his license on all these different things, we still find it really difficult to give him a clear picture like you know if you really want to challenge yourself right now yeah. try to go on to try to go online and find out how to get your kid into a hunter safety class right now oh my gosh i have the same experience i mean we're at it right now chase yeah. is 11 he's been hunting with me for yep. years now he's harvested some animals and stuff but we're at the time where it's time for you to do hunter safety the only option is the online course yep. and then trying to find a field day. A field day, which is so difficult. And quite yeah. honestly, I value in in-person instructor. Every hunter safety instructor I've ever met is a wonderful human being that gives Absolutely. back to our community. And, and God bless it. We need more of them. You bet. But there was not a single calendar on a place. Yeah. There, there was ze literally zero information. And if someone like me who's involved in the sport on a daily basis can't find it, how can someone who has no idea what they're looking for find it? That example is, is so, I mean, it's so relevant. So when my boys and my daughter, actually, all three of them um, went through and took the online course because they had been on hunts with me all over the, the country. We lived out of state. We came back here. We've hunted in Wisconsin now. And we try to get the the online or the field day portion. And the closest one was in, I think it was in Algoma. Like I would have had to drive three hours on a Saturday when they have all of these other commitments with the sports that they're in and the other activities in their church and other stuff. And it's like, how do you expect the average person to be able to drive there and you know meet that requirement? Instead, to me, what we have to do is get a lot smarter about what we're doing, right? We have a mentored, very successful mentored hunting program here in Wisconsin. I've taken my children on it. I've done it with adults. I've done it with other people's children. And if you go through that once or twice where you have gone on a mentored hunt, you're a successful hunter, what more do we need to check the box to say this person, this child, or this adult should be able to continue to pursue the sport that they enjoy? Mm-hmm. Why do we need to have the government stand in and say, oh, no, 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 we need we need you to come and do this field day training? To me, that just doesn't make much sense. And I think that's the kind of stuff where we need to get a lot smarter about what we're doing um, to regulate our sport, to make sure that we're not having bad actors in it. But at the same time, we just we have to get better at it. We just have to. You know, in, in, in that really kind of moves on to another point where you, you had talked about you know, again, the division and the differing opinions on who should be able to do what. And, yep. you know, and we talked about the youth hunt, yeah. you know, to me, uh, my experiences with my son who started at seven years old and shot his first two deer and, and how that actually brought my niece, who my brother at the time was a non-hunting vegetarian. Um, <laughs> it brought her into the sport of hunting because of watching my, you know, my son Chase enjoy it so much. Yeah. She decided that she wanted to get into it and she likes it more than anyone I've ever met. Yeah. And she's this little dance class, church mouse, <laughs> volleyball, little, you know, never say anything ballerina girl. And yeah. she, and she's, she's incredible. She's crazy. disciplined and sits in the stand and is focused and is quiet and is, is, is efficient with a firearm and she's safe and she 
loves it yeah. and it's a joy to take her an absolute joy isn't that what you we know? live for it's isn't that awesome. what we should live for as hunters yeah. is to have those experiences not with just our own kids yeah but with other adults that are first timers those are the things that to me and, and i'll tell the story quick when when we came home from virginia we lived in virginia for about seven years when i was running another organization and they didn't have a hunting age out you there. didn't say washington dc no virginia <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I, work, I worked in D.C. Um, but terrible, terrible place to try and raise a family. Um, no, nothing against my, my friends in Virginia, but boy, it is not Wisconsin. Let me yeah. tell you that. Um, so we came back and my kids had these experiences. We took them hunting. They were successful. And we're getting ready for the hunting season here in Wisconsin with my dad and my oldest son, who was 11 at the time. And my younger son is like, he's nine. And he's like, Dad what do you mean? I can't go hunting. And I said, buddy, it's, you're not 10. You can't hunt here in Wisconsin yet. He's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. And I said, well, I, you're not, not long. Right. Obviously you've, you've roasted some deer. You've been a responsible hunter. He's like, well, we should change that. And I had connections from my legislative days. Um, and we worked with Senator Rob Staffschult, drafted the bill. And this is literally within six weeks of the rifle season opening. Um, we drafted the bill to eliminate the hunting age in Wisconsin, empower parents and other adult mentors to decide when these kids are old enough to take up the sport and pass that law. And Governor Walker signed it into law in time for my son. And the best part of that experience was I got to take my kids to the Capitol and they lobbied, told their story about, look, we were responsible hunters in Virginia. Why can't we be that here? Um, and they changed the law. And that is like as, as somebody who's been working in politics my whole adult life, like that's one of the coolest things that I've been able to experience with my kids. And then you look at the numbers, tens of thousands of kids in Wisconsin have taken up the sport of hunting since this happened five years ago. Again, breaking down those barriers, bringing more people into the sport, zero accidents or injury as a result of those experiences in the outdoors. Zero. Zero. Tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. Zero accident or injury. Because we as hunters, right, responsible adults, we are on our best behavior. Think about your own experiences. Yeah. When you have that younger person or an adult who's a first-time hunter, like you are focused on that person doing exactly what they need to do so that there is no nothing that's dangerous. They're not in an environment where we're going to put them at risk. And you're helping them to hopefully harvest an animal for the first time. Yeah. What a great responsibility, but also what a great opportunity, right? And to me, that is something that we should be doing across the nation is simplifying those regulations, getting opportunities to get more kids involved in this sport before all of the other draws come, the video games, the organized sports, all of the stuff that happens that takes away those, those opportunities. Let's get rid of that now and empower those parents. And when you talk about, when you talk about safety, yeah. when you look at all the states, you know, Texas, Missouri, all these places across the country where there isn't a minimum age, because there's a lot of opposition to that, mm -hmm. a lot. We had customers that were super vocal about it. Mm -hmm. You know, at first, you know, I don't jump to a conclusion. I want to think about it and mm -hmm. process it. I end up, I'm a huge advocate for it. Having firsthand experience now, you know, my son, my niece, you know, my best friend's son shot his first buck this year. I think Grayson was seven or eight, you know, as all the same age. I mean, as a parent, we're doing this with kids out of love. They're precious cargo to us. We are going to do everything we can to take care of them. And there's, when you look at statistically, talking about the number of injuries, 
it's safer than almost every youth sport that yeah. exists. Yeah. You, you know, in in I don't know how you can have an opinion outside of positive if you're a logical thinking person and you're looking at statistics. Yeah. Numbers don't lie. No, they don't. And if that number is zero and the participant is tens of thousands or nationwide hundreds of thousands, you don't really have a leg to stand on if you're going to have something negative to say about it. Right. You, you really don't. It, it has been the greatest joy for me to watch You know, my son when he shot his first buck. He shook uncontrollably. He had looking at his body, had no idea what's going on. He never had an adrenaline rush. He's like, Dad, like, yeah, Dad, yeah, this is amazing. <laughs> and, and, and you can't, like, you know, it brings tears to my eyes because, okay. like, you can't, that's authentic. No doubt. You can't, as a parent, like, push that viewpoint on your child you can't push that reaction on him you can't say oh, i'm just grooming my child to be an animal burger no that's an authentic real response from a child amen that was that was a you know eyeballs on the front of my face canine teeth built with the dna you know predator inside of me experiencing the way that i was designed and loving it amen you know in and, and I will fight tooth and nail against anybody on the fact that that's not something to celebrate, yeah. you know, and to see that. And that's the cool thing. Again, this is a, you know, platform.